0: Hello everyone and welcome back. Before we get started with the show today, I would like to ask you all a favour if I can. If you're enjoying these episodes of Lawyer by Day, it would be fantastic if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It has a big impact on how easy it is for others to find the show and I also appreciate the comments and the support. When I first contacted today's guest about being on the show, we figured out pretty much immediately that we were both... A bit short on sleep. We were both grappling with new responsibilities and we were both searching for hacks for getting a newborn baby to sleep. Our sons, our first children, had arrived within five days of each other and it became clear that one of us wasn't functioning so well. Well, I am... No, I'm not... I won't put this on the podcast. I'm no, not. Are we recording? A, yeah, it still is, but it's not a, yeah, not a thing. But um, the other one of us, on the other hand, was a top level communicator who knew their stuff and could hit you with their pitch as quick as you could say, She Lion.
1: Hi, my name is Kate Dillon, and I'm the founder and creative director of She Lion, which is a business about beautiful tools for the modern working woman, luxurious handbags designed to help you perform at your best and look fiercely elegant so that you can walk fearlessly.
0: Kate is, of course, also a lawyer by day, and this, of course, is a podcast about lawyers' hidden stories. Kate's journey to becoming a lawyer started, like many, on the encouragement of her parents. And very creatively, Kate's parents used the theatre of law to get her across the line on a law degree and a legal career.
1: To be honest, I always wanted to be an actor. And in my family, most people did medicine or law. So my parents were pretty keen on saying law is really similar to drama and you should become a a lawyer because that would be a great way to be an actor. (laughs) So I did a drama major in my arts degree and then also did law and then really enjoyed the law degree because there was a lot of mooting and things like that involved. And then that kind of took off. I did apply for NIDA twice and totally mucked up an Irish accent in the second round of the interviews, um, which was probably good, or auditions rather. And uh, also found out that you couldn't defer your law degree for the time to finish your NIDA qualification, so ended up focusing more on, on law.
0: Whose idea was the Irish accent?
1: Uh, the coach, the the drama coach. Yeah, I think I got massive stage fright uh, because I'd got to the second round in the afternoon, which was a big deal, the second year of applying. And uh, yeah, then I totally botched it and there wasn't really a recovery Uh, from that, so apart from applying again the next year. So it was a good learning experience. Definitely all those uh, types of failure events uh, where you learn your biggest lessons. So it was very positive.
0: Kate went on to tell me that she studied her undergraduate law degree at Deakin University. She would go on to do a master's at Melbourne Law School, that she would study for and pass the New York bar exam and that she would become, of course, a qualified New York attorney But those steps didn't necessarily come straight one after the other. It had to start with a passion.
1: I have always been very passionate about fashion as well as drama embarrassingly my mother would tell everybody that I have a passion for fashion which is just so cringe but really it comes from a lovely place um, so at the end of a um, exchange in Sweden I met someone over there who was saying oh you know you, you can do such a thing as fashion law in New York you should go and do the bar exam and then you can go and do fashion law in New York they had fashion law firms in America and that was just like Bonanza Uh, so started studying for the bar exam with the view of wanting to go over and become a fashion lawyer and that's when the real drive for being a lawyer, um, peaked for me to be honest, and I did pass the bar exam, and then ended up going over there with my husband to look for jobs, and it was coinciding with the GFC, and it was just really difficult. All the internationals were being pushed out first, and my husband's building qualification wasn't recognised, and so we decided that we'd come back, and then in the few years following, he started his business and I started mine, so we're fairly wedded to Melbourne now, but it's nice to have the qualification and. Yeah, again, to have just more confidence in your knowledge.
0: When you were in New York and obviously with the bad timing of of the GFC, what was that like? What challenges did you face going and talking to the people that you wanted to talk to and seeing what was there?
1: I think, to be honest, I studied by correspondence in Australia and just went over there to pass the exam and then came back. And then you wait a couple of months to find out whether you pass. And then I went over there again with my husband to actually get admitted. Um, So you try and align align your interviews or meetings with connections, so to speak, before you go. Um, And people were very welcoming and uh, happy to meet with you. But realistically all the recruiters and any friends of friends that you're essentially meeting with or contacts were sort of giving you the this is the situation at the moment you know realistically maybe you could get a contract position but we couldn't be offering you something strong at the moment because the climate's just not ideal and then that off the back of my husband not being able to to get work apart from maybe in a cafe wasn't that appealing for me to work um, 24-7 uh, with him having a party, which is probably unfair. I probably should have let him do that, but um, we ended up coming back. <laughs> yeah. well, the other aspect, actually, I should tell you is I went over there and was told also that I should probably specialise in fashion law before I would get a job in fashion law. So I needed to do a master's in fashion law. And that, so I met with um, Susan Scarfidi from Fordham Law School, who's like started the fashion law course, and she was amazing. And I remember we'd saved up to get these very expensive gumboots of all things because it was just raining so much over there. They were like $400 gumboots that I just had to have. And so my husband was very kind and let me buy them. And I was wearing them to go see this woman, thinking that I was looking pretty stylish and she was like head to toe toe in like couture I have never felt so cheap in my life but she was so lovely she was really lovely person but she was just immaculate and uh, she was basically saying I think you need to do a master's over here whether that's at Fordham or wherever and that costs around 300k US plus you have to be there you can't do it by correspondence and so that was another reason that we ended up coming back and why I did a master's of commercial law in Melbourne with an IP focus because she said basically it's, it's IP law, fashion law is basically IP law with a bit of M&A and a bit of leasing. Um, but to go and do an IP Masters in Australia and then think about coming back, that'd be helpful. And um, so that's why the Masters began in Melbourne. Melbourne Uni was it was really fabulous the networking opportunities were amazing I was coming off the back of working for a really supportive partner in financial services and doing managed investment scheme um, litigation a lot of Timber Corp and Great Southern and he was fully aware that I was interested in fashion law and wanting to transition and the firm where I worked um, they didn't have IP so he was integral in allowing me to transition to a much bigger firm where they had an IP practice and doing a master's was the the answer to being able to transition. So the, the IP subjects were just so exciting and I'd always done really well with IP at uni but hadn't realised that I liked IP as much as I did until I did it at a master's level. So yeah, I was fortunate in the fact that I suppose I was surrounded by really supportive people that helped with that transition as well. What approach
0: did that partner take in allowing you or, or actually empowering you to make that transition when from a lot of people's perspective in the legal profession they're losing an incredibly qualified skilled competent well-trained long-term lawyer to another firm why would they do that and what, what approach did that partner take in doing that
1: I think I was super fortunate again. He was just an incredibly lovely person Um, and he knew that if you don't follow your passion that you won't be truly happy Um, and I think I had a really solid friendship with him as well so he was... Very happy to give me some more flexible times around take home exams that happened over weekends where you have to write eight to ten thousand words and you don't sleep and you just write all the time. Um, And then um, he was also really um, amazing with introducing me to some people that he knew at different firms so that I could meet them on an informal basis and ask them questions about their day and what they do so that it was kind of like a step into an interview but not an official interview. And then he was also. really great with actually introducing me to the partner that ended up hiring me as well and gave me the most amazing reference each time with whoever he spoke to as well so he was just sort of a magical partner they do exist but he was very 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 lovely to me and is still a good friend
0: you're now a knowledge and innovation lawyer. Can you tell me what that is?
1: Yeah, it's the best way to be a lawyer, to be honest. It's so fabulous. I really love my role. I ended up stepping into it because, as you probably recognised, I'm a massive extrovert and I'm also a closet creative, which is why I ended up stepping out of the very big hours in IP to start She But then quickly realised that I probably needed to have some part-time law on the side to help fund the business while it's getting off the ground and, and ultimately to continue doing both at the same time and saw this great role that looked um, good at g and I had good things about g and a knowledge role, more of a kind of a precedent role, but it was just a knowledge role on writing boilerplate guides um, for the firm and was hired for that and very quickly just sort of organically started building relationships with people in the firm because I'm not so much the type of person who goes in and just doesn't talk and writes boilerplates and leaves, and ended up turning into more of a PSL, a professional support lawyer role, um, really, where people would come and give you legal queries that tended to be contract-based because that was what, sorry, I was writing about. Um, And then they realised that I had the IP background, so I started doing a little bit more queries to do with IP and then also TMT, and then uh, because i was quite extroverted i got really involved with culture and um, and then i have an amazing manager and the partners in melbourne were great too and they sort of just let me lean into the space that i wanted to lean into which Very organically moved into technology and in involving lawyers in discussions about pain points in what was like low value work that could possibly be automated and looking into different things that were on the market or whether or not we could develop them in house. And I have a really supportive manager again um, in Sydney who has been very positive with um, innovation. And I'm sure you've probably seen in the papers. GNT over the last even three years has just really given a huge push into innovation. I mean, innovation has always been in our roots, but recently, um, under the direction of Karen Sandler, we've started developing in house um, technology, and it's been fabulous to be part of that because I'm the only knowledge and innovation lawyer at GNT. Although Karen is definitely an amazing lawyer and the head of innovation, um, all the other people in my team are knowledge lawyers or project lawyers. So I have a great role where I can to help answer legal queries to lawyers and partners and then I also work with practice groups and with clients um, to put together process mapping sessions to streamline inefficiencies and see where we can reduce wastage and um, apply Lean Six. So it's great. It sort of um, bounces off the fact that I'm extroverted, which is great. So I get to use all the parts of my personality that you maybe don't often use as a lawyer when you sit behind a desk and right contracts. Well, or maybe
0: don't always exist within the lawyer pool oh, Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, not possibly. Sure. Yeah. After a few more hilarious jokes about lawyers, I got around to asking Kate about She-Line.
1: She-Line is about empowering women to walk fearlessly. So they're handbags purposefully designed to carry all of your needs, so uh, for work and for weekend. So they have designated compartments for computers charges, two phones, paperwork, pens, cards, everything you need so that you don't ever have to go into a meeting with a client or a boardroom scenario and have that Mary Poppins moment where you pull everything out of your bag and you can't find the one thing that you need and you felt like you looked all organised when you came in and then you're just a mess. With a Sheeline bag on your arm, it makes an influential statement that's really stylish but you walk in and you can just pull out what you need as and when you need it and and then carry on because there just wasn't a female briefcase that didn't look like a briefcase that I could find in the market and also a handbag that didn't break because as lawyers I'm sure you're the same. You pack everything into the bag that you carry but as a woman you often have your beautiful handbag and then maybe your Safeway bag full of papers because that won't break and then your gym bag and then your lunchbox and it's nicer if everything matches.
0: In developing the business and and the idea... What came first, the notion of walking fearlessly or the practical need for the particular bags that you produce and what's the relationship between those two things?
1: They're entirely connected because you can't feel empowered that you can perform effectively unless you have the right tools. I think that's the case in in anything that you do. So the, the handbags are really a tool, essentially, to help carry everything you need so that it's not something you need to worry about that's going to let you down when you're trying to perform. It grew out of the fact that I just couldn't find a handbag that I needed myself um, as a billable lawyer to carry everything I needed to and from the office or to and from meetings or interstate and not have to be the bag lady with a million bags. And you have this snappy suit on or this great outfit and you have your beautiful handbag and then you have this really ugly bag that's carrying all your work gear or you have your big black bag padded laptop bag that's not nice whereas now you can have like a really beautiful snappy laptop bag or a really beautiful snappy handbag that fits your laptop and your chargers and your paperwork and everything else you need and fits on um, as as hand luggage on the plane and you look great and it goes with what you're wearing and you can pull out what you need when you need it
0: I think I know the answer to this one but do you enjoy the process of pitching the business and the products and, and talking about the business.
1: Yes. Yeah. That's so much fun. <laughs> I think sharing the story is fun. I wasn't um expecting that to be the outcome, but I think even just taking the plunge myself, which was honestly on an eyelash, you get to the point where you're like, Oh, I'd really like to pursue this but I'm not quite sure whether it's the right thing and you just sort of Take the plunge, that's what I would say um, has been the most inspiring part of the journey because it's, I've had so many people come up to me and say, I've had this side hustle and I've always wanted to do it. It was so great to hear you talking about it because I went out and I started something small on the side now and I love doing what I'm doing and it's grown and, you know, I don't know that I would have necessarily done it as quickly if I hadn't sort of heard your story and the fact that you jumped in too and, and it's been beneficial to hear that someone else took a plunge. What types
0: of things hold people back at that key moment of saying, I've got this thing, I'm obviously excited by it, I want to do it, I can see myself doing it, but not just yet? What is it?
1: Fear. It's absolutely fear. And I think more so for lawyers, uh, because we're all ingrained with a fear of failure. Everything has to be perfection. Everything has to be 150% for clients. There's no such thing as, you know, 80-20. It's got to be perfect. Um, And I think that we're largely perfectionists as well. So for me, uh, it was huge because starting a business is quite risk averse. And uh, that's how we're trained Uh, risky sorry and we're trained to be risk averse so um, it was a big step but I think it's one that you either take a little bit at a time so that you can test the waters Um, just do something just start and then and then you know it's you get positive feedback and then you can keep growing.
0: Was there a key moment where you realised there was no turning back that the next decision you made would put you into this business and on a track to really making it work?
1: I think I had that from the outset, because of the way I've been trained and my personality, I'm a pretty determined person. <laughs> um, and uh, I think if you're going to do something, you want to give it a red-hot go. And I've always had that, um, that win anything I do, when I want to give it a red-hot go. Uh, and she was no different. So really from the outset, I went to RMIT to learn how to make bags and learnt all about the construction and seams and what would be most workable for carrying heavy things and um, then went and did a whole lot of AutoCAD Illustrator courses on electronic design so I could actually create proper electronic specifications and then made a whole lot of prototypes myself and then networked Furiously with people in the fashion industry and called people to have coffees and find out what they do in a day to work out what the next steps would be, where you find logistics people, where the logistics people would even take on someone as small as me, where you go and find manufacturers, how you source manufacturers, what QA procedures you need. um, And then off the back of all the IP knowledge, which was great, registering trademarks, registering domain names looking into um, what you do to protect your designs, if that's even worthwhile because how fast fashion moves these days, um, sourcing leather, which is so much fun, um, and then buying trips to go over and, and bring your designs to the factories and actually get prototypes made and see your ideas come to life.
0: Taking a few steps back to your time at RMIT, what did you actually do and learn what were the skills that you learned in making those bags in that course?
1: Everything from scratch. There were there were three courses that I did and Andrew Smith is an amazing teacher at RMIT. Truly, I would highly recommend anybody wanting to know about handbags to go and do his courses. You just re- literally start from scratch. You draw your own pattern. You draw your own design first and then Andrew teaches you how to draw a pattern and then you go and source the leather you like or Andrew can source it for you. And then he teaches you how best to cut the leather and skive the leather and then how to put it together into the construction of the design that you'd like to create. And then you discuss what seems would be best. Um, and then everything from the type of, e- e- literally everything you can think of, the type of reinforcement, the type of backings, the type of handle structure, the type of rivets, Literally everything you can discuss with him and you learn about all these different benefits and disadvantages of using different types of materials, whether they're disadvantages, I suppose it depends on the purpose for the product. And then you create a handbag or multiple <laughs> and and then you come out the other end and you've been through the whole process. So that was really helpful with me being able to have that knowledge so when you're going to speak to someone who is a handbag construction specialist with your design you say no actually I want you to make it this way please because I know that this is going to be stronger or no actually I need you to make the same structure like this and I understand that it will be more cost effective for you to make it this way but I need it made this way please yeah.
0: Was that first bag or first few bags you made are they now reflected in any she line designs?
1: A few of them are actually. There's been a couple of iterations obviously since because I'm just about to bring out my third collection, which is really exciting. Um, But... Yeah, there's been a couple of iterations because I'm big on feedback. Again, comes back to the legal training. Um, Always seeking constructive feedback from the customers to see what they think would work better or what hasn't worked or what has worked really well. But the Rainmaker was one that I designed from scratch and also the Negotiator was one that I designed a long time ago as well that has sort of evolved into where it is today.
0: What's your process of sourcing leather
1: Sourcing leather is so much fun. It's trade fairs at the moment. uh, But I think once I grow, it'll be travelling more to more and more trade fairs in different countries. But yes, it's definitely travelling to trade fairs or going to... There's quite a few wholesalers in Australia and they have some amazing leathers that they get from all over the world as well. But I find the international trade fairs, there's just levels of buildings of... Of leather providers from all over the world that come to the one place where you can go and touch and feel and pull and stretch and negotiate, and uh, yeah, that's fabulous. But also the factories can also source things for you on their behalf, on your behalf as well. So there's lots of different ways.
0: Has it been a challenge developing and maintaining relationships with manufacturing facilities, particularly overseas, when there's always particular risks in running processes? And, absolutely and doing that in other jurisdictions
1: absolutely there's yes <laughs> yes i think you don't want to do business overseas unless you can go over there at least two times a year particularly in china i work with these amazing artisan manufacturers that make other high-end well-known bags um so i'm very fortunate that they were willing to take me on because it's very different to australia in australia in the service industry everybody is sort of willing to help you and willing to take you on as a client. Whereas um, in China, particularly with the high-end manufacturers, you literally have to go over there with a PowerPoint and a pitch and um, how much exposure you have and, you know, forecast and they then decide whether or not they would like to work with you rather than you deciding that you would like to work with them. You obviously source them out and say, I'd really like to work with you because your quality levels are amazing and everything that you make is beautiful. But you then have to pitch to them so that they're willing to take you on
0: are there pitfalls in that process that you've seen that you were able to manage or get around because obviously you've succeeded in doing that
1: well, I now work with six different factories that have specialties in six different areas, and I also have a hardware manufacturer. But through, I think the biggest lesson is not knowing what you don't know. So it was really important to me to get a logistics advisor on pretty early, as well as um, a retail veteran who helps with strategy as well, because I think I go about doing things very differently to the standard retail person and that can be positive and negative. Positive in the sense that the people that you're pitching to, whether it's a wholesaler or a retailer or a factory, haven't had that approach in that way before, and they sometimes think it's a breath of fresh air, or the alternatives that they think it's totally not by the book, and how how outrageous of you to even come and talk to us in that way. Um, but the benefit of, is that I didn't know any better, so you can very quickly say, I'm so sorry, I didn't know that that was what I was supposed to be done. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do have an amazing logistics advisor who helps guide me at a much more sophisticated level to where I started um, two years ago in the process as well as um, a retail strategist who's really wonderful with PR and generally navigating wholesale, yeah.
0: The process you're engaging in when you talk about this, was that process in producing handbags ready for disruption by a business like yours?
1: To be honest, I, I don't know that I had ever thought about it that way, but yes, because the the pure basic fact is that the people that were designing and making handbags hadn't walked the shoes of someone who was using them for that purpose. And I think the people who had made those bags were potentially not thinking about fashion. So there was a lot of... There's a a million beautiful, fashionable handbags in the market and there's a million functional handbags in the market, but there are very few that are functional and fashionable, which is the fierce, elegance, premium, practicality, bold ambition tagline that comes in. Um, So really the benefit of thinking as the consumer and the designer is you're creating a product with the consumer in mind because I am the consumer. I essentially made a handbag for myself and then realized after speaking with a lot of colleagues that they also couldn't find a handbag that suited their needs. So it was iterative in that, in that way, but it definitely is disruptive because I think, I just think people hadn't thought of the fact that Professionals maybe need to carry things that are a lot heavier, and that beautiful leather handbags, unless they're made to carry that type of weight, obviously will will break, and and that's that's totally fine because leather's really beautiful and it can only carry a certain weight. But if you reinforce it the right way, um, you can carry a lot more.
0: (laughs) How do you get feedback from your customers?
1: I am very fortunate that they often email me um, to thank me for. It's lovely. It's really lovely to thank to thank us for the the packaging that, that they felt like it was like Christmas opening the bags. Um, I don't think I've ever written to a company to say thank you for the packaging being amazing. Maybe they know that I'm a small company, um, but that's really lovely. Or I have people writing to me saying, "Gosh, I bought this. I bought the negotiator and I love it," and I also do this, do you have a bag that suits this purpose or can you make a bag that suits this purpose? A lot of people write to me and ask about that. So there's a couple of bags on the way that will suit those needs. Uh, But, yeah, there's a a, a wealth of information that I receive from from customers. And also people stop me in the street and I find um, a lot of customers get stopped in the street now and asked about their handbag, which is terrific because it means that they obviously do make quite a big Statement, almost a bigger statement than I had expected them to make. But I think because so many women were looking for a bag like that, that when they, if they are that target customer and they notice that another woman has one that is carrying everything they need and that's got designated compartments, they say, oh gosh, that's nice. Where's that from?
0: (laughs) I understand that the bags have made amazing headway into the legal profession. Have they appeared in places that you didn't expect?
1: Yes, yes, a lot of, it's not just legal, it's definitely a working woman and and working woman per se, anything from medical, teachers, teachers in particular because they carry so many things, quite a few librarians, um, management consultants, really anybody who carries technology, so not even just working women and I think some of my bags now that are tending to be a little bit more fashionable because I'm getting a little bit more Excited about leather and um, trying to suit I think a more fashion savvy working woman as well as a more conservative woman that wants to make a statement still with a fiercely elegant handbag um, bloggers and and generally people who just carry technology day to day. I think these days again it comes back to the way that we work as humans and how we integrate with technology. Everything has changed, and most people carry two phones or an iPad or a computer with them almost every day. So to have a handbag that's got compartments that keep all those things safe and make them easily accessible is really beneficial if it's also fashionable.
0: In fashion and handbags specifically, is it important to access and engage with Particular key influences in in that market.
1: Yes, but it's quite difficult with my target market because my target market it's a workaholic, normally, <laughs> um, a little bit like me, I suppose. So I don't know how much they're on Instagram. Maybe the younger, um, the younger working woman. But I suppose the the idea around sheline is that it's um, it's aspirational um, and it's supposed to pick up on suiting the woman that's already made it and that's at the top of her game and that would like a really beautiful handbag to just help her perform, but also speaks to the woman who's just starting out in the, in the working world and, um, you know, something that's going to make her feel confident and walk fearlessly in her pursuit of her career and really take on that bold ambition mindset so that she's got a beautiful bag and she knows that she can also be that woman at the top who's made it.
0: What does the week of a knowledge and innovation lawyer and the founder and creative director of Line look like?
1: It's different every week, which is what I love. But she-line sort of goes all the time. So she-line tends to be uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday before work, Wednesday after work, Thursday before work, Thursday after work, Friday before work, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, hopefully I can take off. I have an incredibly understanding husband. Um, And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday um, during the day is definitely law firm focused um, and I have to keep them separate like that Uh, but that's why it works I think being able to switch between the two refreshes both roles and I think they dovetail into each other really nicely because I'm in that space working with those people who use my product and then I'm also working in that space myself and getting that intellectual stimulation of still being a lawyer and being within the legal profession, but also being on the frontier of that technology and how technology is advancing law and how law is changing and moving with technology. So it's great because you have most of the week where you're running a business, which is totally different to being a lawyer and you are being more risky and you're being more commercial, but then that helps with the black letter law side of things where I'm advising on legal queries relating to contracts and it's very, very black letter law, or then you're talking about innovation and you're either talking with clients or with practice groups where you're really bringing that commercial knowledge in from running a business to help streamline productivity and make sure you're removing any areas of wastage so that things can be done as efficiently as possible.
0: Is there a different feeling around turning up to work in the office and having a reasonably large team around you compared to what I imagine is forging out largely on your own for the rest of the week in trying to make this business grow?
1: Yes. Well, I I am very lucky again because I have these advisors that I can soundboard with and I also have an incredibly supportive family. Um, So I do tend to use some of their support at their offices, (laughs) which has been fabulous. And my husband is a a star as well. So I, I definitely am beyond totally forging it on my own. I do have support with SheLine. But yes, it's very different to going to a law firm where you have that infrastructure around you and you have a whole team and you have different uh, groups that you can essentially delegate to who can help uh, get your work done because you don't really have as much of that at all uh, with SheLine. But I'm going to make sure SheLine grows to that point so that it will be like that.
0: When you were starting, you said before that when you were starting the business, you were clear from pretty much the beginning that you were going to throw yourself into this and and make this happen. At that point, did you define what success
1: would look like and what failure would look like? I didn't define what failure would look like because I'm very much a glass half full person, but I have, as I say, a, a very wonderful advisor and she said pretty soon after I started, I think about six months after I came up with the concept I met this lady and she said you have to come up with a legacy statement you have to write down what the company's going to leave behind when you die and that was intense Um, but that was the best thing she could have possibly said to me because then from the outset I was thinking really big and I was writing you know I want this to be huge and i want it to be so that everybody all women and men are equal and there's there's no no gender bias or anything at the end of the day and sheline is a well renowned handbag company that makes that you know invests in uh personal development for women and really gives back to society and empowers women to walk fearlessly and runs all these amazing events that help women to feel really confident and do whatever they want and it was this really detailed legacy statement but then from then every decision you make is pinpointed with that big vision that you've written down and so there wasn't I mean of course you have failures along the way that's what makes you learn but to have something quite strategic that's massive means you align all your decisions with that massive projection and I think that helps you build faster and it also helps you when you're talking to people because that's just where you're expecting to go whether or not you get there is 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 separate, but if you're if you're looking to that all the time and all your decisions are aligned with that big picture view, I think that you think larger and then you do larger and then people believe in you more because you believe in you more. How did you
0: come to the items in your or the kind of themes in your legacy statement that weren't to do with the product or the market specifically that was buying your product? How how did you come to have those um, much broader and pretty powerful things in your legacy statement?
1: I think the brand has always been about heart for me, and it was always more than just handbags for me. I always wanted to make a difference. So creating the legacy statement was really about defining what fierce elegance means, what premium practicality means, and what bold ambition means. So that really took weeks to be honest and you can see it on my site if you want to have a look there's dot points under each one that were very very carefully thought out but that is really how the brand developed this this whole other side which i think is more what she line is about rather than, it's a lot more than just handbags it's about w- women being empowered to be their best in any situation and not having anything let them down and having a tool that can enhance their ability to perform and that doesn't affect anything aesthetic because everything on the market at the moment tends to do that.
0: (laughs) Are there other changes that need to occur? Like you've developed, invented and are doing an amazing job in getting these products out to the market that do those very things. Are there other things that need to change in the legal profession? Bags? Well, no, actually I'm thinking more about women's role in the legal profession and what needs to change in the future like not you've you've been talking about your brand and the tool that has a significant impact on that very thing yes it's a part of your mission statement absolutely and the legal profession is one that's not necessarily been um the best at at actually promoting women generally yes. firstly specifically in the workplace but then promoting the amazing kind of people <laughs> that we have in the legal profession and, yeah. and what they contribute to our profession.
1: I think that's true to a lot of professions at the moment. And I think having women on boards and, and promoting women is, is a topic that's very much come to the forefront at this day and age. And it's, and so it should. Law firms in particular tend to be a bit behind the eight ball. Again, G&T is so amazing to allow me to work part-time really flexibly Um, have a handbag business and now I have a baby as well they're they're just so not at behind the eight ball they're very much ahead of the game and there are so many female partners that can work flexibly and work part-time which I think other law firms need to start Implementing more of, I don't know. I can't speak from experience from all the other law firms and what they're doing, but I know GNT is is really fantastic with supporting women and promoting women. And I think we have the most female partners, in fact, in the market at the moment, and definitely win the award for Women's Choice Employer. Uh, and I can and I can definitely back that. They they're just great to work for, but there needs to be more of that throughout business I think because it's hard for women if they decide to have babies or you know whatever that may be in their career trajectory how to keep progressing because you do have to take that time out you can't keep working at that same pace if, if you're going to have children and then just generally I think being treated equally and being paid equally and being judged on merit generally needs to be something that is a standard and I think we've come a long way but we've probably got a long way to go still but it's all heading in the right direction because it's all in the media at the moment and everybody is definitely thinking about it regularly. It just needs to be implemented across the board more.
0: Is becoming an entrepreneur and starting your own business a way of short-circuiting some of those limitations that you see in particularly big institutions like law firms? Can you just walk around some of those Challenges by being an entrepreneur or is the world of small business and startups?
1: Just the same.
0: The same. Just
1: the same. Yeah, yeah, just the same. I think so because, yeah, I think so. I've definitely come across situations where because I've been a woman, someone hasn't taken me as seriously as maybe they should or even just instances culturally, which is is different again, but in in terms of taking my husband with me to a negotiation where he doesn't actually say anything, he just sits there and frowns has been very effective. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a bit about taking the bull by the horns and just going in there and saying, Hey, I'm not having any of that. We're going to do it this way. And I, I'm the one you're negotiating with and, you know, we're going to create a win-win solution and let's, nut this out together Um, as an entrepreneur anyway. That's that's the mindset that I have. But in a law firm, I think it's about having open conversations. I think sometimes it's quite scary to have that conversation and you need to be comfortable enough, but also confident enough to say, hey, this is how I'm feeling. I I think this, this would be fair or I think this is unfair. And then having the employer listen to you and and work with you to find a solution or a flexible arrangement or whatever the case may be, whatever the solution is. And it's I suppose whether or not the environment you're in is is welcoming to that type of um, approach. Where GNT is very much welcoming to that type of approach and they're very much the lean into the situation rather than lean back. So yes, I I don't know whether I've just been super fortunate in the in the journey that I've had and the people that I've come across, but I think having open communication about what you want, whether you're male or female is the starting point because people don't know where you want to go and what you want unless you're making that known. And the worst case is that they say no and then you decide whether you can live with that or whether you can't. And then you make a call after that.
0: (laughs) If a lawyer is thinking about forging out and starting their own business or developing something that represents a bit of a risk for them what advice would you give them
1: do it yeah do it um probably don't quit immediately but um definitely take some baby steps um and and put your toe in the water and just start you're not ever ready and particularly if you're talking about a lawyer doing that nothing will ever be perfect and everything will always be continually perfected. Um, so you won't ever be 100% ready. You just need to start, just need to go and do something and then you'll feel more confident with what you're doing and then you can refine and uh, that's that would be my my tip. And also ask lots of questions and do get support from people because it, there's, there's no weakness in uh, saying you don't know. In fact, I think that's very powerful. People like helping people which has been a massive eye-opener for me. I can't believe how many people that you don't know very well are willing to go above and beyond to really help you because they think it's fabulous that you're doing what you're doing and do amazing things for you.
0: Do people need to have belief in your product or is it belief in your conviction for your business to be able to help you? What is it that allows them to be so open and helpful?
1: That's a tough question. It's probably a mixture of all of those things. I think sometimes it's them seeing some of themselves in you. I think sometimes it's that they're so thrilled that you're so confident and enthusiastic about your idea. I think other times it's that they totally identify with the problem that you're willing to solve and they would like one of the products and so they're like, yes, I'll definitely help you and then maybe you could give me one. And then other times they're just really benevolent and they just want to help and they're just really nice people and they're you know sort of more senior at the end of their career and they're wanting to give someone a leg up just because they're really lovely people.
0: What's next for SheLine? Is it simply more steps towards achieving that legacy statement, that legacy vision?
1: Absolutely. I think that's always going to be part of the evolution of SheLine. But SheLine, like my knowledge and innovation role, is very much tied into innovation. So it's about bringing out innovative handbags consistently each year, eventually each season, <laughs> but each year at the moment we're transseasonal at the moment. Um, and then also incorporating different things to suit women's lives. So the new collection, which is really exciting, has um, some baby add-ons which can be interchangeably added to your work bag so that your work bag still looks like a work bag so essentially I'm just making handbags for myself (laughs) Um, but yes it's good to grow myself with the brand so that I can just keep creating more of what I need as the target market and listening to what the target market needs and then creating more bags that suit those those niche areas I think there's a lot of there's a lot of growth in there still and, uh, yeah, I probably won't say all of the different things I want to do, but there's a long list of um, different different things that are in the pipeline.
0: You and I, over the past couple of weeks, have emailed back and forth a bit about the fact that we've both just become parents for the first time. How is that going, that third new job, yes. um, in terms of how you think about your other two significant jobs?
1: Well, it does change your perspective a lot. Having a newborn is amazingly joyous and exhausting all at once. (laughs) So I do a lot of she-line on my phone when I'm breastfeeding at the moment, but I have a, a really supportive husband who shares a lot of the domestic side of having a new baby, and I have incredibly supportive parents and sister who come over and allow me to do an hour or two of work when I need to like urgently do something and you need someone to hold the baby because the baby just wants to be held because he's only five weeks old <laughs> and you're cross-eyed and you've had three coffees, but that's all right. You get there. But then I'm obviously on maternity leave from the law firm at the moment, but they've been um, super supportive as well. So yeah, it's just, I suppose it'll be a new frontier when I go back and I'm doing law and she lion and, and parenting, but... I'll let you know. (laughs) How do you find it? Yeah, it's been
0: phenomenal. (laughs) Going back to work has been a challenge for me, uh, at least at particular times of the day and the week, particularly Mm. leaving the house in the morning. Yeah. um, When my wife, Gabby, has not had much sleep at all. No. And I've thought a lot about, you know, the value of time and people have, if not advised me, warned me about... How to think about time and being present, particularly as a dad in the legal profession.
1: Yes. Yeah, yes. That's a tough one. I think it's also about making sure we're not on our phones all the time because I find it's very easy to start sending emails or checking social media when you're even just holding a baby and you need to be really in the moment and put the phone down and say, they're not going to be like this for very long. You've just got to look into their eyes when they look at you and enjoy the moment. (laughs) But yes, I imagine it's exactly the same as being a dad. Keeping contact. And at this point yeah, of our interview, yeah.
0: we realised yeah. that we both needed well, to go I like home.
1: The me of management at Free Hills and well, not having to do billable work. And who knows? Yeah. Usually, for an interview as well, um, I do a photo. Is that okay? We do a, video, a photo oh outside. Oh. Can you write like sleep
0: deprived? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lawyer by Day is produced by me, Mark Tindall. As I suggested at the start of the episode, it would be great if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're enjoying Lawyer by Day. And we'll look forward to seeing you in a few weeks.